Milton Hershey is the founder of Hershey Milk Chocolate, the Hershey Kisses and all other wonderful creations that come from Hershey. Milton Hershey had a very tough beginning in his life. Born in 1857 in the area known as the Pennsylvania Dutch Country, uh, he grew up working on a farm in his Mennonite community. He dropped out of school in the fourth grade because he had to work on the family farm. And as a young man, he was fired from his very first adult job at a printing shop when he was just at the age of 14. At that point, he had to find new work. Hershey had an aunt who helped him land another opportunity in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, also known here in Kentucky as Lancaster, Pennsylvania. In 1876, Hershey opened his first confectionery business, making candy. Hershey tried four different business models to be successful as a candy maker, all of them falling into bankruptcy. One failure after another, after another, after another. Until after the discovery of adding local milk to his product, and thus milk chocolate, did he become successful, and we now have Hershey as we know it today, and this little town in Pennsylvania is the sweetest place on earth. Later in Hershey's life, as his wealth grew and he was nearing the end of his life, he developed a passion far greater than chocolate. His passion was for the poor and the orphan children of his community. Hershey's application to that passion was to create a school, a school for poor and orphan children called the Milton Hershey School. Upon his death, Hershey gave nearly all of his fortune to the school, and now, over 100 years later, that school has an endowment of nearly $20 billion. Only Harvard and Yale have greater endowments than the Milton Hershey School. Question, why did Hershey care about something like this to that degree? Why did he care so much about a school? Why did he care about education? Why did he care about the poor? Why did he leave his fortune for this school for poor kids? Why insist that his school would be successful long after he had died? And I think the answer is obvious. It was because of his background. It's because of what had happened to him. It was because of his own story. It was because of his own reality of not much education and being poor. It was because of his own journey. And as an adult, he had a whole new set of desires based upon what had happened to him in his past. Now, isn't that kind of true of every single one of us? In some way, we all have a unique past, and that forms our desires for the future. We have unique stories. We have unique things that have happened to us, and that forms in our heart what we would like to see happen in the future. The easy principle for us this morning is just this. Our past affects our desire for the future. The past affects what we hope the future will be for ourselves and for those whom we love. We care in a unique way about the future based on what has happened to us in the past. Now, in our passage today, we are going to see that we are to have a common desire. We are to want the same thing. And we are to want that only because as we look backward and see what is true in Christ. If you are a Christian, whether you are a brand new believer, even this morning, or if you've been trusting the Lord for decade upon decade, 
We all have certain things which define our spiritual background. We have certain truths that mark us. And we, when we embrace these, it will affect what our desire for the future will be. Now, this is our second week looking at Jesus' prayer here in John 17. We are listening in on Jesus as he prays. Last week, we saw that he prayed for himself, that he would complete the mission. This week, we see that he is praying for his disciples. Those people who walked with him, those people who journeyed with him, those people like Thomas and Peter and John and Andrew and Philip and others who answered the call to be with him, those who had just had the Passover meal with him, now they were the ones who were about to become the apostles. And they are listening in as Jesus prayed. And it was because of the background that they had in Christ would form their desire for the future. Do you know what Jesus wanted them to desire. What did Jesus want them to want? What were the longings that Jesus wanted to pass down to them? It's the same thing that he has for us, and it is this. He wants us to be united around his message. I'm going to look at this in in two points this morning. First, I want us to see our common heritage in Christ. And then secondly, our common calling in Christ. And we're going to spend almost all of our time in point number one. Essentially, I'm going to give you four points of our common heritage and then one application of our common calling. And then we will unite around his table together. First, look back at verse six, and I want to see four things that defined our common heritage together. Let me read verse six, and I want you to see these four things which are true of us, which have happened to us, which define our past, if you will. Let me read again. Jesus prayed, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Four things here that are true of us. First, notice that that we belonged to God. Consider, if you will, a past tense component to this. Again, this isn't shocking, but the phrase here is, Jesus prayed to his father, Yours they were. Something is unique about this. The truth is God is the rightful owner of every single thing. All created things belong to him. And we as human beings, of course, are created beings. Whenever we talk about God's ownership of created beings, we typically think of that in regards to our stewardship. That is, we give of our tithes and offerings as we recognize God owns our jobs, our life, our homes, our retirement, etc., A well-known passage in this regard comes from Psalm 50, verses 10 and 11, where Scripture says this about God's ownership. He says, Every beast of the forest is mine, and all that moves on the field is mine. And of course, this is true. God owns every single thing. So in verse 6, when Jesus prays, Yours they were, really shouldn't surprise us, in the sense that God is the rightful owner of everything. And to this truth of ownership, there is a particular relationship which these passages do not deny. And this is where we will see the reality of the good news of Christ. In just a moment in point two, we will see what God did with that which he owned and is giving of us. But first notice, our being possessed by God includes, as James Boyce says, that we were a holy people Before the creation of the earth, God owns us. Before we see the reality of the good news of Christ, please see and accept God formed you, God made you, God created you. 
In his image, you were made purposefully. You were made by the one who is good and who is wise. This is important. Specifically for these disciples whom Jesus was praying for, they needed to know at this moment, there were no mistakes. Yes, their friend was about to die. Yes, he was about to rise again. Yes, they would soon die after that, and they would not rise again at that moment. And yet they were right where their owner wanted him to be, wanted them to be. This is our heritage. We belong to God. He owned us. But now secondly, look back at verse 6 and notice this common refrain that we have already seen last week. As part of our heritage, we see that we were given to Jesus. Let that language sink into your heart. If you know Christ, you were given from the Father to the Son. This language, this theme, it's everywhere in John 17. Jesus prayed, yours they were, you gave them to me. We saw the same message last week in verse 2 when Jesus prayed for himself. As he prayed for his success to complete his mission in order to glorify his Father, he prayed for all whom you have given to him. The language here is so similar. You gave them to me. This is, again, praying to his Father, thinking of his disciples specifically, and his motivation in prayer was the gift of people like you and me, a group of people. Our belonging to Jesus is less that Jesus is a gift to us and more that we are God's gift to Jesus. That's who we are. The grace that we celebrate that is ours in Christ began long before we knew anything about it. I wonder With all the complexity of living in a sinful world, with all the brokenness that is around us, that surrounds us in various and twisted ways, if you ever think of yourself like this, do you ever think of yourself as God's gift to Jesus? Because according to Jesus, that's who we are. Seriously, I think it's hard for us to accept how precious we are to Christ. These disciples for whom Jesus was praying in this moment were not just random people. They were not insignificant. They were not just hopeless souls. Rather, they were gifts from God the Father to God the Son. And so are you and I. He wanted us, Jesus wanted us so badly to receive this gift That he came for us to take our sin so that he could have his gift. I sense that we often look at our heritage so through the lens of our sin that we fail to dwell enough on the desire of the Son. Do you know this morning? You are wanted by Jesus. You always have been. If you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, let me read verses 3 through 5. Chances are, if you've been around this church for long, you've probably heard these passages a lot. But just be reminded again of this is how Jesus thinks of us as his gift. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Friends, these passages are not used for argumentation about Calvinism or something like that. No, these words are too good for us to believe. It's that because God gave us to Christ, you've been adopted. Because God gave us to Christ, you've been blessed in the heavenlies. You're loved. You're loved as sons and daughters. You're family members. I was thinking about this image this week as I was preparing for the sermon. Maybe you've been to a wedding recently. Maybe you went to a wedding this summer. Maybe you were part of a wedding this summer. You know what happens when a wedding service, a wedding ceremony, when it goes well, you know what happens? All the eyes are on the bride. Everyone is looking at the bride. All attention, all desire is given toward the bride. The beauty, the flowers, the music, the dress, the money spent, it was all for the bride. People do not take their eyes off of the bride. Why? Why is that? Why does that happen at a ceremony of marriage? I think it's because of this. When we remember that God gave us to Christ, it makes sense that God refers to us as the church as the bride of Christ. Think about how God looks at us in him. You see, we desire to be holy. We desire to grow in Christ-likeness, not for him to love us, but because of how much he does love us. You see, he arranged it. He paid for it all. That fuels our passion. You know, I hope this morning, I prayed this week, I preach now with the hope that our being given to Jesus will set us free of all of our anxiety. I really do. Christians, we are God's gift to Jesus. We have Jesus because God wants us to. Jesus' care, his voice, his teaching, his patience, we have it all because we are God's gift to him. You know, last week when I preached from uh, verse 2, it was very similar theme and message with this part. Uh, One young mother uh, told me later that afternoon that, like, why do I worry about anything if I've been loved by God this much to this degree? Why why do I worry? And I was like, gosh, I don't know. Why do I worry? I'm right there with you. Why do I worry if this is true? And then she took it one step further to an application I thought was beautiful. She said, why do I worry about what I'm going to feed my kids for dinner tonight if all of this is true? Now, I don't know if that's the exact application or not, but it's something important. It's the reality. God is the one who loves us. So our heritage includes God owns us. Our heritage includes that he has given us to Christ. And then thirdly, we need to see this. We know God's name. That's what's here. He has manifested his name. Jesus prayed, he manifested your name to the people you gave to me. What does that mean? Why does that matter? This is, in so many ways, I think, the dominant feature of what it means to be a Christian. It is that by the power of God's Holy Spirit, Jesus opened our spiritual eyes to see that his Father is now 
our Father. This is a repeated theme that we are going to see throughout the New Testament. Again, it defines us. Whenever you look in the Old Testament about the names of God, God always reveals his nature by his names. We learn about the character of God by the Yahweh, the Elohim, Adonai, El Shaddai, El Roy, etc. But what name do we have here from Jesus? Which name was manifest by him? Verse 6, he manifested your name. Which name was it? Which name is it? Which one? Folks, do you see it? This is our faith. This is our identity. Verse 10 reveals that all who belong to him know him as his father. The name that God revealed to them and thus to us is that Jesus' father is now our father. In the Old Testament, that name was never given to the followers of Yahweh. It is only here now in the New Testament that we know God as father. If you go back and read through the preceding chapters in in John, as Jesus prepared his disciples for what was now happening before their eyes, Jesus spoke to the disciples about the father, but they were always confused. They never understood. They never got it. They had no category for this family language. In chapter 14, verse 8, Philip just finally stated, Lord, show us the father And that's enough for us. And Jesus responded with, Philip, have I been with you so long you still don't know me? What did Philip need? It's what you and I need today. We need Jesus to open our eyes to see that all that belonged to Jesus now belongs to us, including the name of God. God is your Father if you know Christ. You see, we don't just believe in a God in a religious way. We believe this God has a face. And the face of Christ, our King, is God. For the disciples, that they would take this message, they would go as brothers of Jesus and sons of God. And that is us. As I was praying about this this week, and if I could, if I could just state... Truly, my sinful condition before you, of all of my weaknesses, of which I have many, I think this is my greatest sin. I fear that God will someday forget me or that his grace will run out as if I trusted the Lord in the past, but as I go into the future, boy, it's going to have to be about me. I'm going to have to figure something out. I'm going to have to be clever. I'm going to have to do whatever. From this passage, do you see this morning how impossible that is? It is not possible that your father will not continue to hold you fast. God is your father in Christ and he is the perfect one. The father will not forget his son. That's our heritage. God owns us. God gave us to Jesus, and Jesus' Father is ours. Last thing to consider here before we have one application is there's something else that's part of our story that we can't forget. Look at the last phrase here. Notice that we have obeyed Christ. That's right. In some way, we have been involved in this heritage. Consider all that has been revealed thus far of God's ownership, 
Jesus' possession, the realization of our Father, and now Jesus prays as if reminding his Father that these gifts of his, these people, you and me, we have obeyed his word. You see, Jesus knows that these first disciples will fail in the coming moments. In the coming days, as their faith is weak, their immaturity is revealed, they will disobey. So Jesus prays for them now, knowing that they had been obedient in the past. What did they obey? Whom did they obey? It's very clear right here in verse 6. They obeyed God's word. That is, when Jesus called to Peter to come and follow him, what did Peter do? He followed him. He left his old way of life, and he followed Jesus, not knowing where Jesus was going to take him. When Jesus called the other disciples, they obeyed by faith, not knowing the future, followed him. When you and I heard the truth of God's love for us, our sin, our need for a Savior, Jesus' payment, he opened our heart, we saw, we believed. What did we do? We obeyed. What did you do when you came to Christ? You obeyed Christ. The call of Jesus is one of obedience. You see, when missionaries go out and the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed, when campus ministers are taking the gospel of Jesus on university campuses, even this week, and students believe the message, they are obeying the voice of the Lord. You know, if we're honest, do we really like the word obey? We don't use it very often when it comes to the gospel. That's exactly what Jesus says here. We have obeyed Christ, and Jesus has obeyed his Father. In this story that is true, in this story that is good, in this story that is powerful, in this story that is glorious of our heritage, our story includes obedience to one who is sovereign over us. Obedience to our master, obedience to our creator, obedience to the one who made us, obedience to the one who gave us, obedience to the one who has given us his word. That's us. That's our story. This is our common heritage. So I ask you, church, what do we do with this? What do we do with our background? What do we do with the reality that this is what our past is? All of us, if we know Christ, this is our story. What do we do with the truth of the cross? Let's end with this, point two. There is one application for us. It's found in verse 11. Jesus prayed, Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as you and I are one. What does this mean? It means that as long as we live in this world with Jesus in heaven and us here, that God will keep us centered upon the name of his Father. That we, against the world, which will exist as a declaration to the world that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father, and we are his family, that our lives will proclaim that God's love is real as we are one together. You see this morning, our unity in the name of Jesus and all that Jesus is about testifies to a world which hates Jesus that his mission worked, that our Father's love is real. Our application 
is that we desire above all else that we are unified together. Understand this morning, every power in the world exists to prevent that from happening. And Jesus prays that we as his people are one. To the glory of God the Father and to the glory of his Son, may we be one in spirit, one in truth, one in heart, one in mission, one in our disagreements with each other, one in our confession of faith, one in our confession of sin, one in our repentance together. May the desire of our hearts be the desire of his. And that is we are one in the name of the Father and the Son. That is God's heart for us. Doug Hardy and his family are longtime members here at TCPC. Many of you know Doug and Marge and their kids and grandkids. Doug has served on our session as one of our elders for many, many years. He served faithfully and he has loved many well and brought joy to our lives. He sent the clerk of the session, Jason DeLong, and me an email this week stating that he was taking a much-deserved sabbatical from serving on our session. Nothing uncommon about that at all, but listen to his words as he requested a sabbatical. His email said this, God has blessed me with service on the session. So as I go on sabbatical, please remember to serve the Lord and to serve each other in love and in kindness, to honor one another as more important than yourselves. And when they see our love for one another, they will believe that Jesus and his word are true. Church, this is our mission this week. Wherever the Lord has us, wherever the Lord takes us, they will believe Jesus is real as we are one together. As we honor Christ, the world will believe Jesus is real. TCPC, I pray we are one. But Jesus also is praying for the very same thing. May we be one because of who Jesus is and what he has done. So let me pray. I will transition us to the Lord's table. And then again this week, we will come as one people to this table to be fed by our one Savior. Father, I, I love these words of your desire for us. God, we could never do this alone. We would never desire to do this alone. Father, our hope this morning is that you would truly remind us of the reality of what you have done for us. The love that you have for us is greater than anything that we could ever have for you. So would you change our hearts? Would you bend our hearts? Would you mold our hearts that truly we would love you? So Father, we now pray as your son taught us to pray with one voice. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.